All right, take your Bibles, turn to Psalm 53, the 53rd Psalm. As you're turning to Psalm 53, Psalm 53 is a very short psalm. It's only six verses long. Six verses, but I want you to hear what Psalm 53 says. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. Corrupt are they, and have done abominable iniquity. There is none that doeth good. God looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand, that did seek God. Every one of them has gone back. They are altogether become filthy. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Have the workers of iniquity no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread? They have not called upon God. They were in great fear, where no fear was. For God hath scattered the bones of him that encamps against you. You have put them to shame, because God hath despised them. Oh, that the salvation of Israel were come out of Zion. When God brings back the captivity of his people, Jacob shall rejoice, and Israel shall be glad. Now, for those of you who have been attentive on Wednesday night, does that sound like a repeat? It's a repeat. It's almost word for word with Psalm 14. Of course, you can turn also to Romans chapter 3 and verses 10 through 12. You can see this language also used by the Apostle Paul in further defining it. But thinking about Psalm 14 and then Psalm 53... Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, The Holy Spirit is not short of expressions that he needs to repeat himself. There must be a divine intention or purpose in Psalm 53 in almost repeating word for word Psalm 14. In Psalm 53, as we look at it, in the light of Psalm 14, we can see divine repetition. It's the Holy Spirit that has recorded this on two occasions. Of course, our Lord warned against vain repetition. But yet the Word of God gives us repetition at times. Our Lord often said, Amen, more than one time. Our Lord, when He was in the Garden of Gethsemane, repeated the prayer three different times, the same thing. The Apostle Paul said, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. Why do you have to say it again? Peter talks about putting in remembrance. There are passages of Scripture that are repeated and repeated more than once. God's got a purpose for it. Graham Scroge from back in the 1800s, he said this, If the words are good enough to use once, they're good enough to be used again. That's good. God's word's always good enough to be used again. Sometimes we hear sermons. Sometimes we read behind commentaries. We use some words that other writers have used. They've been spoken once and they're good, it doesn't hurt to repeat them again. 
Therefore, we give credit where credit's due. But here I want you to notice in Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, there are just a few variations. In Psalm 14, God's name, Elohim, is used three times. His covenant name, Yahweh, or Jehovah, is used four times. Notice there's a total of seven times the Lord's name is used, either in Elohim or Yahweh. But when you come to Psalm 53, what you have is Elohim is mentioned seven times. Yahweh's not found there in Psalm 53. That first book of Psalms, what we find, the name Yahweh is used a lot more frequently. In book one, we find Elohim used only 49 times. But in book two, we find Elohim used 182 times. I find it very intriguing. Book one, Yahweh is used 275 times. Book two, only 26 times. So you see a difference there in the first book of Psalms and the second book of Psalms. In Psalm 14, if you were to look at that psalm, it's got seven verses. Yet they're almost identical to the six verses because verse 6 and 7 are basically verse 6 in Psalm 53. Verse 6 and 7 I'm talking about in Psalm 14. In Psalm 53, I do believe it's a repeat of a scenario that David recorded And this Psalm of David was probably reused again. You remember when Sennacherib was invading Judah. And here's an occasion where the psalmist's words are repeated once again. I want you to notice what it says right under Psalm 53. It says, To the chief musician... Upon Mahalath. Mahalath is probably a musical tune, but it says it's a mascal. Now remember what a mascal is. A mascal is a teaching. It's for public instruction. So here, this psalm differs in a sense because here is one that is specified. It's for public instruction. We find the word fool. The fool hath said in his heart. You know what the word fool means in Hebrew? It's a name. There's an Old Testament character by the name of fool. Anybody know who fool is back in the Old Testament? Nabal. Nabal, you remember, was married to Abigail. Nabal was described in the Old Testament as kind of like a churlish man. It's kind of rough. Rough around the edges, just real rough. Nabal was a fool. What is it talking about when it's talking about a person who is a fool? The Word of God makes this reference in Psalm 14, Psalm 53, starting out each psalm. The fool. Who is a fool? A fool is those who would reject God. Those who... It's not talking about 
not having a knowledge of God. It's talking about those who just ignore or reject God. I believe everybody to a sense at one point or another in their life, they have a a knowledge of God to some degree. But they either ignore him or they reject him, totally deny him. It is the fool who has said in his heart, there is no God. I'm not here tonight to try to prove that God is, for God is. There is, and we can go through examples of a cause and effect. If there is a cause, there is an effect of that cause. If there is a world, there must be a creator of the world. Some people say it started with the Big Bang. Well, there's got to be a cause for the Big Bang. What do you go back to behind the Big Bang? You know, you, you can always go behind what somebody's questioning about God. There's always a cause and effect, so I'm going to ask you a tough question. When it comes to the cause and effects, does atheism come from foolishness? Or does foolishness come from atheism? Let me give you the answer. Both. If one is atheistic in their thinking, foolishness comes out of that. If one is foolish, they're atheistic. I mean, one breeds upon another. I want you to notice what it says in verse 1. Once again, the fool hath said, notice where he's talking in his heart. David, as he originally wrote this psalm, he's talking about the heart of the sinner. It is the fool that's speaking to himself. And he is basically saying, there is no God. When a person speaks in their heart, what it's talking about is someone speaking in their innermost being. All they're made up of on the inside. That could be in their mind, their emotions, their will. It is their lives. It's their soul. The heart of a person. The fool has said in his heart, I want you to notice what it says. If you have a King James Version, and I'm not sure as far as ESV or other versions, King James Version has the italicized words, there is. You see that in your Bible. Now what that means, that means the translators inserted there is for the sentence to make more sense in English. Anytime you see italicized words, that's the purpose of the italicized words. They're not in there in the original Hebrew or Greek. So literally the fool has said in his heart, no God. Now notice the implications of that. If the fool is saying in his heart, no God, he's basically rejecting God. He wants nothing to do with God. He's trying to ignore God. There are many people who play the fool in our day and time. They live their life as if there is no God. They live their life as if... I remember an old Beatle tune. You might remember John Lennon, some of you. Imagine. Imagine there's no heaven. Imagine there's no hell. Imagine there's no judgment. Now, if you start imagining things that way, what you have is you've got a life full of chaos. 
Because you know what? If there is no heaven, there's no hell, there's no accountability, there's no judgment, everybody can live and act and do as they want. Nothing would be immoral if there is no God. Life would have no meaning. Life would have no purpose if there is no God. But you know, within the conscience of each and every individual, they know to some degree right and wrong. They have a conscience that convicts them of right and wrong because God exists. We are talking about one who is a practical atheist, not an intellectual atheist. A practical atheist is one who lives their life like there is no God. They do what they want because they don't think they're accountable to anyone. And when someone denies the existence of God, what that leads to is a very corrupt life. That's what the psalmist is saying here. The fool has said in his heart, no God, corrupt are they. And what comes out of a corrupt life, we're talking about unbelievers. What comes out of the corrupt life is what they do. Abominable iniquity. Here we're talking about total depravity. We're talking about the depraved nature of man. Because of the total depravity of man, man is born a sinner. Man sins because he's a sinner. He's born a sinner. He's born as a depraved person, separated, estranged from God. This sinful nature, what it produces, it produces what is called abominable iniquity. What that means is perversity. You can see people in our day and time that are perverse in a lot of different ways. The Word of God goes on to say, There is none that doeth good. As David recorded these words originally in Psalm 14, and it's rewritten in Psalm 53, what he's saying when he's saying there's none that doeth good, he's talking about those apart from the grace of God. There are those that do good because the grace of God is at work in our lives. But as God sees all mankind, there's none that doeth good except for the grace of God. What we see in verses 2 two through 4, in verse 2 in particular, that God is looking. And He's looking over all of mankind. And God can see all of mankind. He can see everyone's hearts, everyone's thoughts, everyone's intents and their motives. God looks and He takes it all into account. The Word of God says, God looked down from heaven upon the children of men. God sees everyone. Now, here, let's go back just a little bit. Remember over in Psalm 14, when it speaks of Jehovah, it's the covenant-keeping God. Here it's using the word Elohim, and it shows that all, regardless of just those under the covenant, but all people have to give an account to God. God sees the lost and the saved. God looks down from heaven upon all the children of men. He sees everyone, and what he does, he looks and he examines, 
He weighs the motives. He weighs the intentions of the heart. He looks at the thoughts. And what is he looking at? To see if any did understand. Understand what? I believe God is looking at mankind to see if anyone understands their depravity, their sinfulness, and their rebellion against God. Their rebellious heart. He's looking to see if any did seek after God. So what we have here, as God looks and weighs the motives and thoughts of everyone, what he sees is that no one has understanding. When it comes to the lost, the unbeliever, they do not understand. They're spiritually blind. That's what it's talking about, about not understanding. Because they cannot see spiritual things and they do not understand spiritual things, the Word of God says they're corrupt, therefore they produce abominable iniquity. And because of that, there is none good. No, not one. They cannot understand their rebellion. If you were to ask a lost person if they're rebelling against God and they don't have hardly any knowledge of God at all, they would say, no, they're not. They're not rebelling against God. But the Word of God tells us different. What they are ultimately doing is they're rejecting God. Because notice what it says. Every one of them has gone back. They are to altogether become filthy. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. All of them are gone back. Now, notice God's looking. They have no understanding. And the Word of God is telling us they've gone back. In other words, they're going the wrong way. They have no understanding. They can't see. They're going the wrong way. They've gone back. And what way back is it talking about there? It's going back to their own way, doing their own thing. They are not seeking God, therefore they're seeking to please self. Listen to what the Word of God says over in Isaiah 53. Very familiar passage of Scripture. Isaiah chapter 53 and down in verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've each one turned Everyone to his own way. You see what the Word of God is saying? We've all turned back. We've all turned to our own way. We're all seeking to please self and do what pleases self. God's looking to see if any understand. If any did seek after him, but they've all gone back. They're all going the wrong way. And the Word of God tells us that they are all filthy. They've all become filthy In other words, sin has affected everyone. Everybody's been affected by sin because when sin came into this world, it spread upon all men. Everyone born of Adam has been born a sinner. But notice in verse 4, the first phrase there, it says, Have the workers of iniquity no knowledge. Very simply, the workers of iniquity have not learned. They're ignorant is basically what the Word of God is saying. They never learned. Have the workers of iniquity no knowledge? No, they don't ever learn. What do they do? What do these workers of iniquity do? Look in verse 5. It tells you what they do. It says, they eat up my people. 
as they eat bread. They have not called upon God. Here's what the unbeliever does. The unbeliever persecutes the believer, the righteous, God's people. God says, they eat up my people. They're trying to devour God's people. They're never learning. They've not learned about God. Imagine the scenario. If this was during the time, as far as when Sennacherib, you remember how he surrounded Jerusalem, how the angel of the Lord come and smote the whole army. Let me tell you something. They never learned while here upon earth, but when people depart from this life, they learn there is a God. They might say no God all this life, but when they part out of this life, they have a reality that there is a God. Here the Word of God tells us they try to devour God's people and they never call upon the Lord. If they do, it's in a mocking term or in a slanderous term or using His name in vain. Even the atheist will call upon God, but it's half-heartedly. In this psalm, in the last couple of verses, what we have is that their future has been determined for those who are unbelievers. Verse 5 says, There were they in great fear, where no fear was. You imagine if you were back in that day and time, and the Assyrians, 180 some thousand, surrounded Jerusalem, and all of a sudden the whole army are scared to death. They were in terror. They, they were being terrorized. They had dread, is literally what the scripture is telling us here, where there was no fear. All of a sudden, death spread through the camp because the angel of the Lord started striking them down one by one by one by one up into the thousands of thousands. They were in great fear where no fear was. For God has scattered the bones of him that encamps against you. God's already scattered the bones. That's kind of like a, a, a victory out on a battlefield. Here's the worst case scenario if you were to lose. You would not get a proper burial. Your bones would rot out and dry out in the sun out on the battlefield. God scattered the bones of him that encamps against you. You have put them to shame because God has despised them. Here, the verbs in this verse, in verse 5, they're all in the past tense. It's as good as done. But I want you to notice here in this psalm, Psalm 53 ends the same way as Psalm 14 as far as in a positive note. It gives us some encouragement because it talks about the believer and it tells the destiny of the believer. As the psalmist cries out, he says, Oh, that the salvation of Israel were come out of Zion. Listen to what that's saying. 
Oh, that the salvation of Israel, the deliverance of Israel, were come out of Zion, out of Jerusalem. When God brings back the captivity of his people, Jacob shall rejoice and Israel shall be glad. Now, in a temporal view, God delivered the Israelites. But if you look at this verse of Scripture and you think about it, I can't help but think, oh, that the salvation of Israel were come out of Zion. Isn't that where our Lord came out of, out of Jerusalem? Our deliverer, our salvation. That's what the word salvation means. Our deliverer has come and he's come out of Zion. And you know, when you think about that, the one who brings salvation is Jesus Christ. He's come out of Zion. Therefore, Jacob shall rejoice and Israel shall be glad. In other words, there's rejoice and rejoicing and gladness. Why is that? Whenever there's a victory, there's something to rejoice about. Whenever there is gladness, it, there's something to be glad about when there's a victory. It's like Sister Jana playing that song and Mark singing, Oh, victory in Jesus. <laughs> he was rejoicing. That's what it was. <laughs> didn't matter what you was playing. Because there is victory. Therefore, there is joy and there is gladness. Mankind, government, will try to solve all the problems. Have you heard everything they're trying to do? Anything you got in your kitchen, they're trying to get rid of. Gas stoves, I can't even remember what all they're trying to get rid of. Trying to turn you in, over into electric cars, you know, get rid of your car, you got to get an electric car. They're trying to do the green thing. Now, where do you stand on that? I ain't going into it. But let me tell you something, that's not the problem. That's not going to solve this world's problems. They talk about the global warming. It felt good today. Wasn't it a beautiful day? Nice outside. Mankind tries to solve problems that are not the problems. They want to get rid of your stoves. I remember that one too. I guess we're going back to campfire cooking. <laughs> when man tries to resolve problems, the problem is they don't understand the problem. Because here the Word of God has given us the problem. The problem, the fool had said in his heart, no God. In other words, the problem lies within the heart. The problem with mankind is the problem of the heart. And the only solution to that is that salvation would come. Christ has come into this world to save sinners. And he's come out of Jerusalem. And for those of us who are in Christ, there ought to be rejoicing and gladness because of our great deliverer. He has solved the greatest problem we have in life, and many people don't even know they've got the problem, and that's the problem of sin which separates them from God. Christ settled that upon the cross. He paid it all. And now because of him, for those who believe in him, we can have communion with God. There's a relationship. There's fellowship that comes from that relationship. And oh, how that ought to grow and how we ought to be rejoicing as God's people. 
God has been so good to us. There ought to be each and every Wednesday night you being happy and glad and rejoicing because of the great things that God has done. When we get our mind on this world and the problems of this world and you watch too much news, you're going to be drugged down. You're going to get filthy, dirty in your thinking. You're going to get blah. You're going to just be no energy. You know what? You need to turn it off at times. I'm not saying don't stay in tune with what's going on in the world. I'm saying there's times you don't need to be consumed by it. We need to be consumed with the good news of Jesus Christ. That others might see Christ in us. Because we have the only message of hope that this world needs. It's not in man solving the problem. It's by man realizing I am the problem. And we need a peacemaker. We need one who is a mediator between God and man. And that's the man Christ Jesus. May many people hear and fear the Lord. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. And as we look at the recording of your word, and we've already read it before, yet you repeat it again. Lord, oftentimes repetition is that we might think upon it even deeper. For we are often absent-minded, forgetful, and we do not keep things in remembrance as we ought. So, Lord, we pray that you would ever, never, ever let us come to the point in our lives where we say, no, God. May we ever be obedient to your will, for you are our Lord. And at your will, we pray, would be done. We ask that you work in our lives, work through our lives, that others can see Christ in us. We'll give you the praise and the honor and the glory for Christ's sake. Amen.